like for you to turn to Acts chapter 25. As you're turning there, I do want to mention that uh, these last few chapters, and we don't have many more to go in the book of Acts, they all certainly focus upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul going from Jerusalem to Rome. We have seen how God chose to bring Paul into Jerusalem. And while we see a tremendous struggle in his own life as he arrives in Jerusalem, has a confrontation in in the church, and then goes to the temple, and then is recognized, and and a riot uh, uh, ensues and uh, takes place, that certainly it, 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 uh, it seems to offer a lot of people questions as to whether he was in God's will or not. Now, I think we've probably settled that matter a number of times as we've talked about the fact that, God, that Paul always wanted to do God's will. And he was always wanting to be in the midst of God's will. So, uh, we have to understand that when we don't see results as we would like to see them, that doesn't mean we're not in God's will. And so, we find Paul in prison. We find the Apostle Paul, having spent two years in Caesarea without anything having been done about his situation. He has his Jewish brethren desiring to kill him. They've already set traps to do it, and God has brought him through all of that taking him to Caesarea to stand before Felix, the governor there. Felix decides not to make any kind of decision, puts Paul back into prison. Two years have passed. And it brings us to a new governor. Felix is gone and Festus now is in Caesarea. We read in verse 1 of Acts 25, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem didn't take him long to go to the place where he knew he had to go and, and, and get some things set in order because as the governor, his main job was going to be to keep the peace. And if there was no peace, it was his head. So he went from Caesarea to Jerusalem three days after he had arrived as governor. And then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So once again, they're plotting to kill Paul. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem 
and there be judged before me concerning these things. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender, have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Before and usually at the end of any high school or university graduation, there is uh, played a familiar piece of music that I'm sure can be hummed or whistled by anyone who's been to even one commencement ceremony. That piece, and actually it is just a part of a piece, is entitled Pomp and Circumstance, March Number 1, and was written by British composer Sir Edward Elgar. He, he wrote this particular piece in 1901, and while he composed six pomp and circumstance marches, number one was by far his most popular and most performed. Now, why, why do I bring this up? Well, apart from the fact that the title of my message today, Pompous Circumstance, <laughs> is a play on words, based on the title of this march, uh, there is somewhat of a connection with, with the Apostle Paul's situation at this point in our text. Elgar was actually making a statement with these marches that he had written, connecting with no naive assumption the pomp and the splendor of the show of military pageantry that moves armies toward war, and the circumstance, the drabness and terror of actual warfare. He was connecting the idea that all of this pomp and pageantry and... Uh, and all that moves armies to war cannot be separated from the actual war itself, the circumstance. Our text today contains a pageantry of people, as we'll see in just a moment, a pageantry of people parading before us in varying degrees of pomp and, and pompous splendor, while the circumstances for Paul appear no better after two years of imprisonment. But the precious thing to note is that the Lord has kept Paul safe through these circumstances so that he might bring his servant out for public display. You see, those that find themselves in positions like the governor and the kings and all, as we'll see in, in just a moment, you know, they, they find every opportunity they can to be publicly displayed before the people and to show this pomp and splendor before them. But God has taken his own servant, Paul, and... and, and guarded him and guided him, protected him, as it were, for a time when he will display him, not for Paul's glory and splendor, but to show his glory and splendor through his servant. Not with pomp, but in his power and purpose will God display his people. We always need to remember what was said of the Apostle Paul in Acts 9, verse 15, when the Lord said to Ananias, the servant in Damascus who was caring for Paul, he said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. We have seen now how Paul has ministered before the Gentile Felix, and now he will be before Festus. And, 
And then kings, you will be before King Agrippa before you know it. And of course, he's already been before the children of Israel. And the Lord said uh, something further. He said, and you will see, he will see how much you will need to suffer for my name's sake. Or that he will suffer for my name's sake. And we think, well, Paul has indeed suffered quite a bit to get to where he is today. In our story. And yet again, what God allows and what God does, he always means for good. So in the first 12 verses that we read, two years have now transpired since chapter 24. But we're not told a lot about what Paul does in those two years. As a matter of fact, we're told nothing of what Paul has done. Luke records none of Paul's activities in Caesarea since his purpose is to show us how the apostle gets from Jerusalem to Rome. The new governor, Festus, goes immediately to Jerusalem to meet with the, the Jewish leaders to possibly conciliate, which means to, to make peace with them. But, but Festus was historically a more honorable person than the previous governor, Felix. Festus would not give Paul an unfair trial. We know that Felix, you know, heard Paul's stuff, but he just decided, well, you know, I don't want to deal with it. So he puts Paul in prison and then leaves him there for two years. But Festus understands a little bit more about this situation. He's a little bit more honorable, a little bit more noble than, than Felix was. Because in verse 16 of our text it says to them, I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. So we see that he is already a better person than Felix is. And it, it appears to be very clear that the Lord is using Festus actually. The Lord is using Festus by guiding him to refuse the Jews' suggestion to bring Paul back to Jerusalem. So that in doing so, they could ambush Paul and kill him. That was their idea. That was their desire. Listen, if we can work on the inexperience of Festus in his office, we can tell him, listen, just bring him back up here to Jerusalem. And while he's coming with him, we'll just, we'll just ambush him and kill him. And, and, and you know, it's all because they had no hard evidence at all to convict Paul of any wrongdoing. And it is so sad how full of hatred these people were against Paul. They didn't want him in prison. They wanted him dead. They weren't satisfied with Paul being in prison. They wanted him six feet under. And they even had a new high priest. And you think that maybe after two years they'd calm down a little bit. But no, they couldn't be satisfied with Paul that way. They wanted him dead. But isn't it interesting how we have to deal with this kind of thing all the time? Not so much that people want us dead or whatever, but we have to deal with the way man is always wanting things done. How man proposes to do one thing or another. We deal with it today, but we have to be very careful not to be the man proposing because we need to understand one very important truth here. The lesson here is this. Man proposes, but God disposes. Man proposes, but God disposes. What do I, what do I mean by disposing? Well, it, it, just, it just means that God is the one who orders. God is the one who organizes. Man might plan, but God orders all things. God is in control, in other words. And we need to remember that in all the things that we do as believers in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Time and time again, as we read the scriptures, man proposes things, man does things that seem right to them, and usually it just leads to death. 
Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You see, it doesn't matter how much we plan. It matters what God decides. It matters what God organizes. It matters what God has ordered already, you know. God knows the beginning from the end. I mean, if, if we trust that God is God, then we need to let Him be God. Of course, the world isn't going to see it that way. The world has their own ideas. The world has their own ways of doing things. And they're going to try to propose that above, over and beyond what God wants. So it was easy then for them to say, let's do everything we can to kill this guy. We hate him. We don't want him around. God says, I've got other plans. When it's time for him to come home, I'll bring him home. But right now, I'm going to protect him. You ever understand sometimes when you're going through troubles and trials that while things could have been a whole lot worse, God's hand is still over you and you still, and you still wonder, Lord, I'm, I'm wondering why I'm here, but at least I know I'm safe. Well, it's because God knows best what you need. And sometimes we need to go through the trial. Why? Because God doesn't deliver us from the trial, He delivers us through the trial. And we grow. We grow in faith. We grow in our maturity in Christ because of it. Well, when Festus returned to Caesarea after ten days to reopen the case there, guess what? The scene of the previous trials that have happened for Paul, they repeat themselves. Verse 6, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and, and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. This has happened time and time and time again. While well, he answered for himself, now Paul speaks and he says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Remember, we've noticed that those were the, all the accusations. It was, against the, it was against the law, it was against the temple, and it was against Caesar. He says, in any of these things I have not offended. He says, have I offended in anything at all? None of these did Paul offend. And all along, you know, we've been seeing power politics then being played out here between Festus and the Jewish leaders. Power politics. We see it today in our newspapers. We see it on, on, on TV in the news. Power politics. I was talking last night, uh, you know, to our Saturday night service. I was telling them, you know, today the Senate is, is working on Saturday. And I said, how many of you work on Saturday? And they were all raising their hands because they're all tired of, you know, working on Saturday and coming to church. And I said, here they, they make a big deal. They, they work on Saturday, you know. Oh, we're working on Saturday. Well, you should work. I wonder how much they do for us anyway, Monday through Friday. Well, there they are, you know, and, and all they're trying to do is they're trying to get this debate on this house uh, or on this bill dealing with health care and all of that. And I'm not trying to bring this up for, for political discussion here. The, the point of the matter is it's all about po power politics. One party is trying to convince a couple of people in their party that they need to vote in their party. Why? Because their party. They just want to have a party and get home, you know. It's power politics. It's all around us. It's everything that we see many times on, on TV. But Festus here is wanting to please the Jews, but he also needed to establish that he was in charge. The Jewish leaders had tried to take advantage of this inexperience of Festus, but the Lord, you see, was in control of all of that. And Paul had nothing to say in these matters until he's able to answer for himself. 
And again, this is what he does, and he doesn't change anything of what he says. And yet everything was still beyond his control. He wasn't in control of being in prison. He wasn't in control of being hated by, by his, his fellow Jews. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't in control of any of these things. But the Lord was still safeguarding him. The Lord was still protecting him and keeping him and watching over him. And Paul knew this throughout all of his ministry because in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 through 10, he opens his heart in honesty and and humility. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. You know, today there's people, you know, they, they, they pack... You know, auditoriums, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands because they, they come, you know, the preacher comes with a message, oh, just be positive and be nice and be, you know. Listen. Paul was in trouble and he said so. When we're in trouble, we need to say so. But we know one thing, beyond the trouble, there is a God who loves us and cares for us. Because in verse 9 he says, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, and whom we trust that He will still deliver us. He's delivered us, He's delivering us, He will deliver us, He's a delivering God. That's during His life. What about at the very end of His life? Paul, now in Rome writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, the last letter that he will ever write, the most personal letter that we see of Paul. And he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.17, that the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And not long after that, not long after that, Paul would have his head on a block And enter into glory. When it was God's time for him to come home. I have fought the good fight, he said. I finished the race. And he was victorious. You see, God wasn't done with Paul where we have him right now in chapter 25. Just like he's not done with us yet here, right now. We need to trust him in the midst of the trials that we're facing or the struggles that we're dealing with, the hurts that we find ourselves in the midst of. Well, getting back to the situation now in his best political posturing, Festus asks Paul if he wants to go to Jerusalem for his trial. Verse 9, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, 
Now, he was an honorable man, but, uh, you know, he understands his own job, too. He answered Paul, and he said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? Now, you have to understand that Festus doesn't know that there's a plot against Paul's life. So anyway, he, he asked Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. Now, when he said that, he was speaking of the place where Festus was sitting in Caesarea. Because it, it was indeed a, a Roman uh, province and uh, being led by a, a Roman governor. So it was an extension of Rome and therefore it was a, a, a seat of, of Caesar. And by the way, we, 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 just, we were just there at Caesarea where all of this took place. Little advertisement for Israel. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. You know why? How many times has he said, I'm a Roman citizen. He has that right. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender, or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. If I have done something wrong, then I don't object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So now it was, let's go beyond this little court here and let's take you where you want to go. Where is that? Rome. Paul is on his way. Because Paul clung to, God, to, to Jesus' promise that he would go to Rome. He was clinging to that promise. Did you, if you remember back in chapter 23, verse 11, after such a tremendous struggle that he'd been having, you know, and, 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 with all of the rioting going on and all, the following night it says, The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So he knew he was going to Rome. This was his ticket. This is how he was going. This is how the Lord has set it up. And yet it was Paul who said, I appeal to Caesar. So again, in this way, Paul, uh, uh, I should say, God protected Paul and would take him to Rome for his final years of ministry. Now, every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar and have his trial in Rome. And this is what Paul now used. But remember that he exercised his rights within the will of God for his life. He exercised his rights within the will of God for his rights. In other words, he was acting with wisdom within the will of God. He knew it was God's will to go. He was where he was because of God's will, not because of his own will, as some people may argue. He was where he was because God wanted him there. And if it was a matter of two years in prison... We don't know what he did in those two years, but we'd have to wonder how many times and how many times during a day within those two years did Paul tell someone about Jesus Christ? Because that was his calling. Now we get to the pomp. Here comes the pomp. And after some days, verse 13... King Agrippa and Bernice 
came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus uh, laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has the opportunity uh, to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and, and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion, uh, it says in the King James about their superstition, and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. You've got to stop here and just think for just, for just this one moment. Paul never stopped preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. When given the opportunity before men, before kings, before governors, he would always put it in there. Oh, by the way, there's a man named Jesus. He died, but he rose again from the dead. Preach the resurrection of Christ. That again tells us that Paul was where he was supposed to be. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, by the way, the term Augustus is not so much a name as it is a title of one of the Caesars, who was ever Caesar at the time, which was Nero. He says, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa and Bernice were the last of the Herodian family, the family of Herod. We all know the name Herod. There were a number of Herods uh, that we find in the New Testament, in the very beginning of the New Testament. As the family history went, they were part Jewish, but primarily they were Edomian or Hasmonean. Uh, even you could say they were part of that group of the family of the Maccabees. But uh, in essence, we would, know, we would know them better as Edomites. Now, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So yeah, that takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. They were descendants of Esau, who was the twin brother of Jacob, son of Isaac. And of course, we know that struggle between Jacob and Esau and, and, and what took place then. So you get an idea of where they're coming from as, as, as that line actually went a totally different direction than, than Jacob did. But their legacy was one, and this is the, the family of Herod, their legacy was one of wickedness, it was one of murder, it was one of perversity. Consider, if you will, Herod the Great killed all the male babies in Bethlehem. That was the first Herod that we, that we meet in the Gospels. When Jesus was born, of course, he became jealous, and he heard from those kings that came to say that was born the king Today, and, and you know, he got jealous, and so he went out, uh, he said, you know, for every male baby two years and under, had them, had them murdered. And then Herod's son, Herod the great son, Herod Antipas, we meet him later on in the Gospels, he was the Herod that uh, had John the Baptist beheaded. And then Herod the great's grandson, the son of Antipas, Herod Agrippa the first. 
We meet him actually in the book of Acts, because Herod Agrippa I put James to death with a sword. And then his great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II, is the Agrippa that we meet in our text. Let's see if they've gotten any better. Because Bernice, who is mentioned here, was not only the sister of Drusilla, who was Felix's wife, we learned that last week, or a couple weeks ago. Bernice was not only the sister of Drusilla, Felix's wife, she was, uh, of course, Agrippa's wife, Agrippa II, but she was also Agrippa's sister. That's a problem here. Do you understand? There was an incestuous relationship. Agrippa married his sister. You guys don't seem too impressed. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying that because this is not the makings of a model family. I'm just saying they didn't get any better. They were Jews and they, you know, I mean, Herod the Great had the temple built and all and and, and whatnot. and, And, you know, they always had to act apart. But they were so far from God. So with that in mind, now we get back to Festus. And Festus didn't give Paul's case to Agrippa right away, as the text tells us. Uh, He waited for the proper time. He seemed to have explained the situation to, to Agrippa as though the problem was too much for him to handle. And so he calls for his help. Well, you know, that appealed to Agrippa's pride, since the governor was actually the king's superior. You see, Festus was a superior to a king only because the king was placed there by the government, kind of a, as, a, as a vassal king or you know, a pawn. But Festus, being Roman, was actually over this Agrippa. So here Festus uh, pleads with, uh, in essence, uh, Agrippa to help him with this case. And and while Festus called the case a matter of religious superstition and having to do with another person named Jesus and was disappointed that it was not of a political nature, he, he was glad to pawn the apostle off to someone who had a better handle on, on Jewish affairs and more political pull with the Jews. And so, to Caesar Augustus Nero, Paul would go. And then Agrippa said to Festus, verse 22, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Now notice verse 23. Here comes the parade. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, the word pomp there is very interesting. It is the word in the Greek, uh, fantasia or fantasia, where we get the word fantasia or fantasia. We get the word fantasy from it as well. But it is a a word that that, that means dignified splendor, as it were. When they had come in with great pomp and dignified splendor and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. In other words, this took a while. This was all coming in for this one little visit with Paul. At Festus' command, Paul was brought in. 
So picture the picture this 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 grand entrance. Picture the, the trumpets blaring, you know, and, and 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 all kinds of banners being being brought out, and 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 the king and the and, and the queen walk in, and uh, and then all of these governors and all of these commanders and all of the host of of everyone just coming in, you know, better than the Macy's Day Parade thing, you know, this is you know just all coming in. I mean that, that that was so important to them. They needed to be seen for who they were, you know, in their own minds. And then Festus says, oh, bring Paul. And Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him, therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Well, getting back to verse 22 and verse 23, I mean, this had become more like entertainment than it was a trial. Supposedly, it was a trial, but with all this pomp and with all this celebratory entrance, as it were, it was kind of like a joke. After all the destructions that the Herods had caused, it was only fitting that the last of the Herods should hear the gospel from the lips of Paul, Jesus' most able advocate. But first came the pomp. <laughs> you know, it's been said that God has a very de- developed sense of humor. Here we are gathered, you know, here were gathered all the powers of Rome and Judea and all of their dignified splendor outwardly and with pompous self-importance within. And to this august assembly, an insignificant looking Jewish man in humble prison garments was brought to stand. Now you get the picture? Robes of crimson and scarlet and purple, bedecked with silver and gold. And then in the midst of it all, a simple man of God. The Lord had finally brought his prized apostle out for public display. Having been guarded safely from his enemies to be showcased to the world, precious to the God who saved him and called to a marvelous work. A little insignificant, dirty, humbled man. Paul understood this. 
He knew it all along, how he needed to be when brought forth to proclaim the gospel. He would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 11, these words. He would say, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I tell you, I I, I love this phrase of the Apostle Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, folks, by the grace of God, you are what you are. By God's grace, you are what you are and who you are to His glory. Not to your glory, to His. And Paul said, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. By God's grace, we are what we are. And there he was. In the midst of all of this pomp and pompous splendor. Self-importance on parade. And Paul stood there. With a splendor that only God could see. Because the splendor is what comes from within. A person who knows God. And who knows Christ. And who's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 24, Festus introduced Paul in this manner. He says, you see this man. There was some sense of of condescension. In pointing Paul out to the people. And yet Paul was the noblest of all the people present in that meeting room that day. Paul was the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was an ambassador in chains. He was a priest and a king to the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we never need to feel that the world has more than we do. As believers in Jesus Christ, we never need to feel that the world has more than we do. Jesus Christ has made us rich and has given us a heavenly calling and He has given us the hope of glory who is Jesus Christ Himself. And by the way, (laughs) the malady of pomp and circumstance that we're all familiar with, that's actually a tune called the land of hope and glory. And that wasn't written so much about England as it was about heaven. And Paul was a representative and an ambassador of the kingdom of God as you and I are. As we are. In closing, what, what an amazing understatement is given in the last two verses of our text by Festus. He says, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. And therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. It was more than unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges. It was stupid. (laughs) But then again, wouldn't we say that about about everything that Paul has had to suffer so unjustly thus far? 
Let's see. Paul was taken to prison back in Philippi. Chained along with Silas in a dark, dank, drab prison. Midnight. You didn't hear the sound of complaint. You heard the sound of praise. At every place. We're not calling Paul a superman here. I'm sure many times he cried out to God. It always there would be in that heart the words of Jesus. Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, Paul trusted in the Lord's boundaries and he trusted in the Lord's restrictions. Paul trusted in all that the Lord allowed him to endure to this point. Paul trusted in, 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 in everything that God was doing with him and for him through all of these things. Paul knew that the way that he had been safeguarded by the Lord, while it may not have been the way he'd have liked, was God's better choice for him. See, we need to change our perspective as if to say, you know, I'd rather have it this way. God says, yeah, but if you have it my way, you'll be better for it. Even with the struggle, even with the trial, even with the circumstances that you may be dealing with. There might be pomp all around you, but the circumstance is, God's with you. That's where the real battle lies. It's God's better choice for us. And I would say that we have a lot to learn about that. From a poem that was written many years ago, and back in the days of the, the Jesus Revolution and Movement, back in the early 70s, Phil Keggy took uh, these words and he wrote a song. The words, I want to read them to you as we close here today. Because they say to us exactly everything that we've seen Paul endure, knowing that everything that was done was God's best choice for him. It's called disappointment, his appointment. Disappointment, his appointment, changed one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my, my purpose is God's better choice for me. His appointment must be blessing, though it may come in disguise. For the end from the beginning, open to his wisdom, lies. Disappointment, his appointment, whose? The Lord's who loves me best, understands and knows me fully, who my faith and love would test. For like loving earthly parent, he rejoices when he knows that his child accepts unquestioned all that from his wisdom flows. Disappointment? His appointment. No good thing will he withhold. From denials oft we gather treasures of his love untold. While he knows each broken purpose leads to fuller, deeper trust. And the end of all his dealings proves our God is wise and just. Disappointment, his appointment. Lord, I take it then as such, 
like the clay in hands of potter, yielding wholly to thy touch. All my life's plan is thy molding, not one single choice be mine. Let me answer unrepining, Father, not my will, but thine. Disappointment. His appointment. Just change one letter and you change the whole perspective of how we are to see what God has taken us through for the purpose of blessing us and for us to receive every benefit that God has for our good. Shall we pray?